Well, for those who are joining us tonight, over the last two weeks we've be, begun to try and landscape our society as we find ourselves now, some of its key values and commitments and shaping ideas, and what the cultural mindset, the worldview as we have called it, reinforces. And two weeks ago we thought about cynicism in our society and the loss of hope. Last week we talked with Fiona about a loss of meaning in society and put those two things together and we have tonight's theme which is about despair, overcoming despair. Despair comes when we see absolutely no way out of intolerable circumstances. It's what you see etched on the faces of hundreds and thousands of homeless Syrian refugees. It's what you see with the Rohingya refugees fleeing from Myanmar only to settle in the utter bleakness of Bangladeshi refugee camps. It's what you see in the Grenfell Tower ex-residents. We hear it in the voices of those who are addicted, in the voices of those who are trapped in debt, of which there are many. We see it in the eyes of the chronically ill. We sense it with the long-term unemployment. And for all the affluence and all the buoyancy and all the laughter, the stand-up comedians and the whatever of our culture, Despair is not far from the surface. How much binge drinking is a disguising of pain? It is estimated worldwide that 800,000 people die by suicide every year. And the opening words of tonight's passage stand in the sharpest of contrasts to any sense of despair. If you have your Bible open and look back to what passage that Emily read from Colossians 1 and verse 24, it begins with these remarkable words, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And it jolts a worldview that values comfort and ease as the highest values. Paul is in prison for his faith, as we heard mentioned two weeks ago. He has every reason to be fearful for his future. Strong forces are at work, it seems, from this letter to wreck the good work Epaphras and others have done in planting this church in Colossae. We know from another of his letters at about the same time, many in Asia deserted Paul. And yet throughout this passage, we see anything but despair, a remarkable dignity and a profound sense of purpose and hope. And the answer is found in two key statements in this passage. And in each, there is a slow building up to a crescendo. So look at verse 25, and look how it sort of builds up. I have become its servant, uh, the servant of the church, 
by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them has God, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. And here comes the punch, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, here's the punchline, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then if you look at chapter 2, those opening words, it's almost as if there's a parallel building up to a crescendo. And so he says in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And for Paul, it is the person and the work of Jesus which is the fulcrum around which a whole new worldview is established. Christ is the lens through which the world is viewed in a totally new way. A fundamental tenet of today's culture is that there is no longer any single centre for a meaning to our world. There is no one single all-determinative authority no one overarching truthful story. In postmodernism, there is a multiplicity of perspectives depending on our gender and our race and our experience and our prior commitments and our circumstances. You choose Christ to shape your perspective on life. I choose 21st century Marxism. And my parents choose new age interests. And my friend chooses neo-paganism. And who says that one is better than the other? That is the culture and the worldview of today. And it's at this point that we must hold together the passage that we read and thought about with Fiona last week and today's passage. Last week, if you cast your eye back to Colossians 1, particularly verses 15 to 20, we were thinking and focusing on what could well be a hymn of worship, a great statement about who Jesus Christ is. He is no less than the image of the invisible God. He is the Lord, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. He is the head of the church. He is the first human being to rise from the dead. He is in himself has all the fullness of God dwelling. He is the one whose death on the cross has brought peace and will lead to the reconciliation of all things. Notice five times in that hymn, all things are used. And in conclusion, in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul writes, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. So when we come to think about tonight's text, and the text that I want to use are these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just that we're choosing one perspective over against others. For Paul, Christ and Christ alone is reality. This is not just our particular vantage point. This is not just another lens that we've made up for ourselves. This is, as one author puts it, the very grain of the universe. Everything, says Paul, finds its reference point in Jesus Christ. 
And what an incredible thought that the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who has redeemed all things, lives in your life and mine if we are a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ in you, this Christ, this cosmic Christ, who is the hope of glory. And I want to say quite simply tonight that this is the answer to the world's despair. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Paul spells it out in two particular ways. First, there is an immeasurable resource within us for the present. Christ in you. And second, there is an indescribable prospect, the hope of glory. And it's these two things I want to look at. Throughout Paul's letters, his preferred way of talking about the Christian life is that as individuals, we live in Christ. And if you look down to verse 28, you see him using it here, where he talks about, may we present everyone mature in Christ. Together we are in Christ, if we are believers. In Christ, we die with him. We are raised with him. This is the meaning of baptism. This is a theme that he's going to expound later on in this letter. But here he says the flip side of that, that Christ is in us, that at the heart of our faith is something intimate. The one who is the Lord of the whole cosmos stoops to dwell in my life and yours by his Spirit. And if that is true, then it transforms everything. And first of all, it transforms our suffering. And so back to the opening words of this section, verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And then to show how much he sees this suffering through the lens of Jesus, he goes on to say these remarkably, remarkable and slightly puzzling words. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Of course, what the rest of the New Testament will not allow us to do is to read these words as if Paul is saying that somehow Christ's death on the cross for our sins was incomplete or inadequate and that Paul was helping along in this process of redemption. We don't have to look further than last week's verses. In the clearest possible terms, Paul has said that in Jesus all the fullness of God dwells and Christ's atoning death was once and for all completely and sufficient for all salvation. Christ's death has brought about nothing less than the reconciliation of all things. Indeed, it is often pointed out that Paul uses this word affliction, a word that is not ever used when the New Testament writers speak about the redemption of the cross. What Paul is saying, it seems, that such is the oneness of Christ who lives in him and himself, and such is the oneness of the church 
who dwell in Christ, we are indeed the body of Christ, that Paul sees his suffering as Christ's suffering. That when Paul is beaten up and Paul is imprisoned and Paul is maligned and Paul is belittled, then he is identifying in the closest possible way with what Christ suffered and what Christ feels. And suffering, therefore, becomes a privilege. We have the dignity of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. In the time of writing, there was the idea within Judaism that in the build-up to the return of the Messiah, God's waiting people would suffer birth pangs as the new age began to burst in, the messianic woes, as they were called, the labour pains of a new world being born. And here is Paul perhaps reinterpreting this Jewish idea in the light of Jesus Christ, seeing his own suffering as Christ continuing to suffer in his body, which is the church. And the simple point that Paul is making is that he reinterprets his difficulties in terms of Jesus. And instead of despair, there is enormous dignity. The one at the centre of all things is not, and postmodernism rightly fears this, some powerful, oppressive, totalitarian authority, but at the centre of the universe is a loving, crucified Christ, a slain lamb who is on the throne, the one who understands our suffering and through his suffering has come to redeem ours. Amy is here tonight. Is that Amy? And I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, Amy, but I'm going to mention your dad's book. Is that okay? Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I'd started reading Steve Griffith's book. Um, and it's a book about his father, Amy and Josh's grandfather. And Peter Griffith was uh, a school teacher, a head teacher in former South Rhodesia, in now Zimbabwe, where Holly comes from as well. And I have to say that as I've read this book, and I've read it quite slowly late at night, it probably has shocked me and moved me more than any other biography I have read for a long time. Peter had under him eight other Elim Pentecostal missionaries working in a mission school near the Mozambique border at the time that the freedom fighters before the independence of, Rudi of South Rhodesia were uh, coming across the border and causing havoc. And there were landmines and there were violent raids and there were horrific counterattacks by the Rhodesian forces and many Africans and many expats were killed. And one day, Peter, Amy's granddad, was back in London, finishing off an MA in education while his colleagues were still in South Rhodesia. And uh, one of the denominational leaders called him up and said, we need to meet, and they talked. And he said, Peter, I've got some terrible news for you. And Peter said, has my best friend been killed? 
And he said, I'm sorry to say, not only has your best friend been killed, all the Ely missionaries, all the white Ely missionaries have been murdered. I think some of you probably remember the story because it hit the national news. David Owen, who was at the time the Foreign Secretary, spoke about it in Parliament. There was a great deal of angst about it because it was at a very delicate time with Ian Smith when negotiations were happening to try and get him to hand over to, to an African uh, leadership. It made headlines around the world. And Peter recalls, told by his son Stephen, immediately that day catching a plane and being offered a free ticket back to Zimbabwe. And he walked into one of the missionaries' homes and he found food still on the table. And he found an open Bible. And one of the single missionary women who had been murdered the night before had opened in her Bible 1 Peter chapter 2. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. For to this end you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Tom Wright, in his little commentary on Colossians, says this, The church is the body of the crucified Messiah, something we so easily forget in our modern, comfortable church. Christ in you. The crucified Christ in you, transforming suffering. And not only transforming suffering, but transforming our daily service for him. On Thursday, I had the privilege of leading a leader's retreat in Montrose, at Montrose Baptist Church. And we were looking together at Paul's letters to Timothy. And as many of us know, Paul was encouraging this relatively young, timid, at times sickly young leader called Timothy to hang in there. And I said to the deacons these words on Thursday, even the most resilient of us gets weary in this leadership business. We sport bruises. People disappoint us. Opposition is not unknown. Disillusionment is a perennial threat. Ministry is always spiritually and emotionally more draining than we allow. The spiritual battle is real and we need all the resources of God. Look at verse 25 of chapter 1. I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in all its fullness. And then look down to verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend, struggle, literally agonize. And then chapter 2, verse 1, he repeats it. I want you to know how hard I am contending, agonizing for you. And if you just look over for a moment to chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul there commends 
his ministry colleague and the founder, church planter of this church in Colossae, Epaphras. And the same word is used again in this delightful little biographical stretch sketch. He is always wrestling. It's the same word. Always agonizing, always struggling in prayer for you. And Paul's struggle and Epaphras's struggle was just the same. Desperately praying, anxious, passionate that the church here in Colossae would flourish. And the question is, how did Paul keep going? Well, look at the end of verse 29. With all the energy, Christ so powerfully works in us. Christ in us. The immeasurable resource for the present. I don't know if you know Pilgrim's Progress, and if you do, you may remember part of the story where Christian arrives at a rather strange house where all sorts of scenarios and visions are given, and the interpreter's house, and this is one of the scenes that Christians saw. Then I saw in my dream, writes Bunyan, that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where there was a fire burning against the wall, and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience in church? where there's a good fire and somebody's casting cold water on it. And yet, the fire did burn higher and hotter. Then Christian said, what means this? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding, burning higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason. So he had him about the backside of the wall, took him round the other side of the wall. And there he saw a man with a vessel of oil pouring oil into the fire, which he did so continually cast. Christ in you. How do I keep going? With all his energy that so powerfully is at work within us. Christ in us transforms our suffering and it transforms our resilience in service. And finally, it transforms our thinking. And here we come to the second crescendo, the great statement of chapter 2, where he says in verse 2 and 3, my goal is that they may have the complete riches, the full riches of complete understanding in that, or, that they may know the mystery of God. And mystery here is not some detective puzzle. It is, in Jewish terms, something that was hidden in the past but now has been unveiled and revealed. And then the punchline, what is it that has been revealed? Namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I don't know how many of you have been to the National Library in Edinburgh. I'm sure Brian and Polly have been there many times. It holds seven million books. 14 million printed items 
and it has over two million maps. It has a legal right as a national library to a copy of every book published in the UK. Its collection includes copies of the Gutenberg Bible, a letter which Charles Darwin submitted with the manuscript of the origin of the species, the first, portfo uh, the first folio of Shakespeare, and it has the largest collection of Scottish Gaelic material anywhere. It is an impressive collection. But in Christ is found all the wisdom of knowledge in the whole of the cosmos. No space discovery, no Nobel Prize thesis, no new philosophical idea, no biomedical breakthrough even begins to surprise Jesus Christ. All the wisdom of knowledge is found in Christ. He is the truth, and all truth is his truth. And the wrong-headed thinking that was going on in Colossae, chapter 2, verse 4, I tell you this, that none of you may be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Look pathetic in the light of Christ in us, in whom is the all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's tapping into what we read at the beginning of the service, Proverbs 8, Lady Wisdom, who was there before creation, who was there alongside the Father. I was constantly at his side, says Wisdom. I was filled with delight day after day, always rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in a whole world, delighting in the human race. Now then, my children, listen to me. And as we get to know Christ, the one who lives in us, our minds slowly become renewed to see the world as God always wanted to see it. And then briefly and finally, Christ in you, an immeasurable resource for the present. And this is the hope of glory, an indescribable, glorious prospect. It's striking that although we are only still at the beginning of this letter, we are encountering the theme of hope for the third time. There it is in chapter 1, verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, as we thought about with David two weeks ago. Then chapter 1, verse 23. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And now these great words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And for Paul, two crucial ideas are bound up in this phrase. Phrase First, the presence of Christ in us now by his Spirit is simply the first installment of the glorious age that is to come. The Spirit in us now, Christ in us now by his Spirit, is the trailer, is the foretaste, is the preview of the full messianic, messianic age to come. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Think of the best moment you've had since you met Jesus Christ. A moment of joy, a moment of gratitude, a moment of worship, a moment by yourself perhaps 
of intimate fellowship with Jesus. These are minimal samples. These are just trace elements compared to what it will be like when we meet Jesus face to face. Christ in you, a foretaste of the hope of glory. Romans 8, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And the second crucial idea tied up here is that this experience of Christ now is not only an aperitif of what is to come, but it is the deposit, it is the down payment, it is the guarantee of what is to come. Not only is the future with Christ going to be so much more glorious than our very best moment, but it is the guarantee that because Christ is in us now, then the promise is certain for the future. 2 Corinthians 1, God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is simply no room in a Christian worldview for cynicism. No room for an idea that somehow life is going to end so difficult for us. It is the wonderful conviction that Christ in us is indeed the hope of glory. Going back to Peter Griffith and the book written by Steve, a remarkable thing happened, as the book tells us. As independence came in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, over a number of months in very different parts of southern Africa, nine of the guerrilla soldiers who were part of the murder of those early missionaries were wonderfully converted. And Peter Griffith had the very difficult but very moving experience of talking to two of those soldiers who had murdered his colleagues. And firsthand he was able to find out what had actually happened. And what haunted those soldiers, what brought them to Christ, was an incredible courage and peace as those missionaries died at their hands, something that never left them, a seed that was sown that brought wonderful fruit in the end. Let's tonight, whatever our mood, our difficulties, our circumstances, hear these words again, Christ in us, an immeasurable resource, the hope of glory, what a wonderful prospect is guaranteed.